Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 26. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there might be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You may be seated. As you're seated, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of today, the gift of being able to gather together in the name of your Son, Jesus, for the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for the opportunity to dig into the scriptures that the Holy Spirit inspired to be written, that we might rightly worship you, and that in rightly worshiping you, We might serve you in all of our life. So I pray that you would help us to take this text today and to apply it to our lives as a congregation, as individual members of it, and that you would strengthen us as we seek to do so. And pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to look at the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 next Sunday. We're going to finish this chapter next Sunday. Um, But for the sake of clarity, let me steal the first verse of next Sunday's text in verse 27. It says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This is the image of the church that Paul communicates to the Corinthians, the body of Christ. And this is what we're looking at today. I think it might be the most spectacular vision of what the church can be in the whole Bible. I think this, this image that we have. But the irony of the whole thing is that we have this image in the letter to the Corinthians because they were divided and immature, and they were debating which gifts of the Spirit were better and more honorable. So we we gain this beautiful image because of, in a certain sense, their ridiculousness, the struggles that they had as a congregation. And Paul's writing this letter to them, and he's saying, like, okay, you're you're debating which gifts of the Spirit are better and which ones are more honorable, and he's, he's kind of going, hey, you need them all. That's his point. In fact, you don't just need all the gifts. You need every person. Not just every gift, but every one. 
And so, Christ City, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And with that in mind, and I want that to settle in your mind, this is how we're going to navigate the text today. Let me give you a bit of an outline. We're going to see one body, two errors, and one goal. One body, two errors, and one goal. That's what we need to look at. One body, two errors that are to be avoided, and then one goal that we can work toward as a community. So let's look at one body. Paul's using this human body as an image here, or a metaphor of the church, the body of of Christ. Now, for your visual help, I have a body. And since most of you are looking this direction, let me illustrate this for you. I have one body composed of many members. Ooh. My foot is a member, yet it is not disconnected from the whole. Ah, great clarity in the scriptures. I have a heart pumping oxygenated blood so that my foot doesn't die. And then when that's deoxygenated, it circles back in a whole rhythm that I don't understand. Back to my heart where somehow the air I'm breathing goes into my blood. It's amazing. I studied theology, not biology. (laughs) I have a liver. I have no idea how it works. I don't have to understand how it works to greatly value my liver. For I know from elementary school science that without my liver, I will die. One body, many members. Verse 12 says, just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. The body is one with many members. Many members make up one body. You go, this seems fairly clear so far. (laughs) I'm, I'm picking up what you're laying down. It's clear. It's helpful. Then he says something kind of curious, kind of unexpected. Look at the text again. Let me finish the sentence. It says, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. In lots of ways, I think if we're reading this and we just sort of expect the end of the sentence, we could maybe think that it's going to say, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many, are one, so it is with the church. That would make sense based upon the way that he's speaking to the church. But he doesn't say that. He says, so it is with Christ. It's unexpected, perhaps, in the way that we're reading it, but it's very important. What's he getting at? He is saying that Christ is so identified with his people and that his people are so identified with Christ that he can use this kind of shorthand as he introduces the metaphor. He doesn't say, So it is with the church, or so it is with the body of Christ. He just says, so it is with Christ. It's talking about the church, but I think it's very important that we understand the bigger point that I believe he's making. Okay, Where did Paul the Apostle, he's writing this letter to the church in Corinth, where did Paul the Apostle meet Jesus? Well, Paul the Apostle had a fairly shady past, as a religious terrorist. He was seeking out followers of Jesus to arrest them and or kill them. 
So he first met Jesus when he was in the midst of persecuting Jesus' church. In Acts chapter 9, it says that he was traveling to a different area to arrest more followers of Jesus and that, quote, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That's the same Paul who wrote this letter. He was called Saul at that point in his life. But look at Acts chapter 9, verse 3. It says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. That's where he was headed. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This is well after the trial and the crucifixion, and the death, and the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has ascended on high and is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is well after Jesus' incarnation. We're talking about the resurrected Jesus showing up in a bright light and speaking to Paul. Jesus speaks to him. Something very important for our understanding about who we are as the church. Paul's not chasing down Jesus to kill him and arrest him. Paul is hunting down followers of Jesus and then a bright light shines and the voice speaks and Paul says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. See, this is how closely Christ identifies with his people, and this is how closely his people, the church, are identified with Christ. When you persecute his people, you're persecuting Jesus. Let me take you to one other place in the scriptures that I I believe will help us to see this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is the same Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. He wants them to understand the significance of Jesus' death upon the cross. See, in the world at that time, just like in our world, there were great divisions between groups of people. No division was as strong as the division between Jews and non-Jews, and that is the mixed group that Paul is writing to here. Look at the text one more time, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Here's what I want you to see. 
Jesus' work on the cross was effective for two kinds of reconciliation. There was a vertical reconciliation between us and God. See, humanity had sinned, and the relationship between God and humanity was broken, and it was in need of reconciliation. And reconciliation can only happen through repentance and forgiveness. And since we could never atone for our great sin on our own, God made a way for us to be forgiven our sin through the work of Jesus in our place. It's his death for our life. His death for our forgiveness and our vertical reconciliation with God. And then there's the horizontal reconciliation we see in this text between groups of people who are divided. In the midst of all of our divisions and all of our differences and all of our diversities, in the midst of all of our different cultures and our different backgrounds and our different stories and our different experiences and our different expectations, in the midst of every significant thing that would normally keep us apart, God has called us to be one body. Jesus is the peace between us and God in a vertical way, and he is the peace between us and one another in a horizontal way. So much so that he creates in himself one new man or one new corporate entity, one new corporate body in place of the two. So he takes people who were greatly divided and through his work on the cross, he brings them together. And they're now united together. Does that making peace, it says, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. See, in Christ, we are united by something that is infinitely stronger than anything that could ever divide us. It's like God has taken every individual story, every individual dream, and he's taken those stories and dreams, and when they intersect the gospel, they come into an encounter with the truth of the gospel. It redefines those stories and those dreams, uniting them together as individual members of one body. All of our differences when we encounter the gospel melt away in the sense that they are no longer cause for division, but in and through the gospel, we can be united. It's Christ who unites us as his one body. We are so united together that Christ, with Christ that when, when someone persecutes Christians, it's Jesus they persecute. Do you see this? And Paul knows this because he was the guy doing the persecuting. He's the guy that saw the light, heard the voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Christ so identifies with his people. And his people are so identified with him, united together, that it changes the conception of how we think about what it means to be a Christian changes our conception of what it means to be a human. So look at the text again. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. 
For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Okay? The way we are functionally united together as the one body of Christ is that we are all baptized in the one spirit. We're not divided by our different ethnicities, Jews or Greeks. We're not divided by our different socioeconomic statuses, slave or free. We are all baptized in the Holy Spirit into the one body of Christ. All united in one spirit, yes. All united in one body, yes. And all the same, no. <laughs> We've talked about this. Uniformity is boring. We have unity in our diversity, not in our uniformity. So we all come together and share this union without having to just all become clones. We get to be ourselves, our spirit-filled selves. We get to be our individual members of the one body. We don't all become the same. We are all unique, but we are all united. And you say, well, that's pretty clear. Thank you, Brett. That's very compelling. You're welcome. I assume this whole church that had this letter written to them then just went on in harmony and peace. Because it's very clear. I'm sure they all lived happily ever after the end. Wrong. Again, the occasion for the letter is their jacked up divisions. And Paul's trying to paint a picture for them of who they already are in Christ. One body, but we need to be aware of the two errors we see. Two errors. Look at the text again, verse 15. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. This is the first error. I want to call this error spiritual inferiority. Spiritual inferiority. It's that feeling that you don't belong. It's that feeling that you're not valued. It's that feeling that your gifts don't matter. I've been the pastor of this church for nine years, so I know you're sitting here. And I know you feel that. Not all of you, but some of you. It's the foot that looks at the hand and says, well, the hand is more important, so I'll just kind of drift off in the background and not do anything. It's the ear that looks at the eye and says, well, if I was an eye, like she's an eye, then I'd really belong, but I don't belong because I'm just an ear. It's you who don't think you matter. It's you who feel like you don't belong. It's you who, for whatever reason, and there are many reasons, it's you who don't think that your contributions to the one body are as valuable as the contributions of others. And you're wrong. It's spiritual inferiority, and it's one of the errors we see in this text. 
You say, if I was just like that, then I would really matter. But I don't have those gifts. So I'm not very important. There's a second error in verse 21. We see this. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor, again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. I want to call this error spiritual superiority. It's a feeling that you don't need others. That your part of the body is of greater value than somebody else and that your gifts are the really important ones. And I've been pastoring this church for nine years and I know you're here too. Verse 22 says, on the contrary, Paul going, here's your error and here's why you're wrong. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. See, the prominent parts of the body might have some kind of smug spiritual superiority that they think entitles them to say things like, I have no need of you. Paul challenges that. He says, au contraire. <laughs> You're wrong. I think it's wrong. I think it's arrogant. I think it's proud. Actually, in the nicest way possible, I think it's just really stupid. I think it's really stupid thinking. D.A. Carson is a New Testament theologian. He said, God's intent is to honor what others dishonor. Now listen, applied to the church, it becomes our collective responsibility to honor gifts given little thought or prominence. Why? Why is that then supposed to be our collective responsibility? Why do we have to start honoring those who maybe others Dishonor. What does that look like? Why? Because no one is insignificant in the body of Christ. Period. Look at verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Okay. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, it says, as he chose. That means you cannot be dismissive of the necessity of your gifts for the thriving of Jesus' church. You can't be dismissive of your gifts. That means you can't be dismissive of the necessity of the gifts of others. Your spiritual inferiority is not serving anyone. And your spiritual superiority is not serving anyone. Because God has called you to be you. And he's called me to be me. And he himself has arranged the members in the body. It says each one of them as he chose. You be you, and I'll be me, and we'll be stronger for it. And listen, hundreds of years of sitting in a room like this has sort of turned the church 
weird. Not you, because you get it. But historically, I'm just saying, perhaps. All of you facing the front, and a guy standing here. It just might warp us a little bit. Just a thought. And I'm not saying we're going to put the chairs in a circle or something weird like that. Look, this works. But it only works if you understand that your spiritual inferiority is not serving anyone. When you go like, well, if I could just teach the Bible, boy, then I could really be useful. And meanwhile, I know more Bible teachers than you probably do. Let me tell you, most of them can't organize themselves out of a wet paper bag. Okay? Honestly. That's why we get help from other parts of the body. Apply that to every area of ministry that you can conceive of and recognize that there's something very important that God has chosen to put you with your gifts where you are. And it's not so you can just hide. It's so you can serve to his glory, to the benefit of the church, to the good of the city that we live in. 19th century pastor J.R. Miller said, the question of small or great has no place here. To have been thought about at all and then fashioned by God's hand to fill any place is glory enough for the grandest and most aspiring life. And the highest place to which anyone can attain in life is that for which he or she was designed and made. It's not about like, if I could just sing like that, I could be valuable, but I'm not valuable. It's like God thought about you, chose you, gifted you the way he did and put you where he is. That's it. It's gorgeous. You be you. Be the foot you are or the hand you are or the ear you are or the eye you are or whatever part of the body fit in and contribute. See, if we forget that all this is by God's design and we forget the glory of being united with Christ and of being the Holy Spirit's people, we will default into errors of either excluding ourselves or excluding others, thinking that we all don't need each other. Okay, here's my experience. It's just my experience. Those with the, um, we looked at the gifts of the Spirit a couple weeks ago. John helped us last week. Those with the revelatory gifts, you know, prophecy and things like that. They can offer, often I think overlook helps-oriented gifts and helps-oriented people. And they even may think, well, they're just people who care. We're all called to care. That's not a supernaturally gifted thing. Supernaturally gifted thing is my prophetic gift. I've been hearing this for 20-some years in the church. Trust me. We can overlook people. Those with mercy gifts can often think teaching is overvalued. And you're like, oh, now he's, he's, he's aiming. He's zoning in on me. He knows that my mercy gift thinks his role in the body is overvalued. Those with teaching gifts are often suspicious of the justice people. They do good, but in the teaching people's opinion, they're not concerned enough with doctrine. Just justice we're very suspicious of that. 
as a group of teachers. Get some doctrine. I know that person's starving, but just first, have you clarified the Trinity with them? <laughs> but we get very suspicious of this. We do. Evangelistic types are frustrated with the pastoral types because the pastoral types spend all their time just making sure everybody in the church is okay and they don't spend any time worrying about people who aren't yet here. The pastoral types are frustrated by the evangelistic types who never disciple anybody into spiritual health because all they care about is getting them in the front door. Then they're back out to find someone else. What happens is we then segregate the body of Christ into little enclaves. We take our little gift and rather than being a part of the whole body, what we do is we just make, it's kind of like a room full of ears. We're like, you go over here. Because the eyes are frankly annoyed with you. We're just going to put you over here and you hang out. Just ear it up. Whatever you do, okay? Livers, I don't know what you do. Just chill together. The rest of us are tired of hearing how important you are. So what we do, we segregate the church into little enclaves or little holy huddles around gifts. What happens then is that you create division where there shouldn't be any, and we get at other we get at odds with each other with the other parts of the body. It's actually a really immature manifestation of the church. It's a really immature way of being the church. Here's why I'm not in favor of categorizing and separating the gifts of the Spirit into smaller groups apart from one another, okay? When you take the hand people away from the foot people and you take the eye people away from the ear people and you do stick the nose people all in their own little room over there in their corner, you can't be whole. Like this whole metaphor that Paul's using is actually really funny, but it's sort of a grotesque thing when you think about it like that. We're just like a bunch of Bodies walking around with no nose, seven ears, right? It's weird. It's quite funny. It's kind of gross. Here, without the hand, you'll never reach anyone. Without the foot, you'll never get anywhere. Without the eye, you can never see what God's doing. Without the ear, you'll never hear any stories of his goodness. And without the nose, you'll never know if the aroma of Christ is in your midst. You need the hand and the foot and the eye and the ear and the nose to all show up and be their part of the body. The mature vision of the one body of Christ knows that we desperately need all parts and that without all parts working together, we can't be healthy and whole. Greg Lanier has written about this. He said, we are united not only to Christ, but also to each other in a way that no longer, or that no, <clears throat> pardon me, that no other earthly organization, club, or team can offer. Like body parts that share the same blood, neural pathways, and so forth, Christians belong to each other. Indeed, we need one another in a way we barely understand. I think that's a good summary of the church 2,000 years later after Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth. We know we need each other, but we still haven't quite figured out why. Christ City, don't fall into the error of amputating someone from the body. And don't fall into the error of amputating yourself from the body. We need each other. We're different, and we need each other. 
There's one body. Those are two errors. One goal. A few weeks ago I said, we are not independent people. We are spirit-dependent people. And as spirit-dependent people, we are always interdependent on one another so that we can experience the fullness of God. And this interdependency is a really big deal because you can't live for Christ on your own. The way Jesus identifies with us and the way that we have all become the one body of Christ, no matter where we're from or our previous experiences or differences, the way we've all been vertically reconciled with God, the way we've been horizontally united together as the one body, that actually now becomes our motivation to care for one another in true interdependence. It becomes our goal. Interdependent care becomes our goal. Verse 24, the second half of verse 24, it says, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So if you're part of this church, but no one knows you, and you don't know anyone, you might have some really valid reasons for guarding yourself relationally, but you just need to know that can't go on forever. See, if you don't know anyone and no one knows you, you're basically saying one of three things. You're saying, one, my gifts won't add any value to you, so I'm not worth knowing, which is spiritual inferiority. Two, you're saying, my gifts won't add, or your gifts won't add any value to me, so I don't need to bother getting to know you, which is spiritual superiority. Or three, you might just be saying, I'm hurt and I just need time. That's okay. This text says, God has so composed the body that there be, may be no division, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If you're suffering, we want to suffer with you. Don't believe the lie that you bringing your suffering to a group of happy, clappy people will somehow diminish their joy. It's not true. If you're rejoicing, we want to rejoice with you. Like, don't think that your rejoicing is going to somehow sour a group of people who maybe had a bad week. It actually will elevate them and encourage them that things are going well in the world. If we're going to care for one another, we need to know one another. And, and I think there's a formula for this kind of care in the church. We want to be a church that allows every member of the body to grow. There's a retired pastor in Nashville named Ray Ortland, who seems like a really wise old grandpa. Like I'd like to, I'd like to just hang out with him. Because everything he says, I'm like, hmm. It's encouraging and warms my heart. Where may I get a hold of you? <laughs> this is the formula he says. He says, gospel plus safety plus time equals a church where anyone can grow. 
Gospel plus safety plus time equals a church where anyone can grow. Let me read a, a lengthy quote from him. Gospel plus safety plus time. It's what everyone needs. A lot of gospel plus a lot of safety plus a lot of time. Gospel. Good news for bad people through the finished work of Christ on the cross and the endless power of the Holy Spirit. Multiple exposures, constant immersion, wave upon wave of grace and truth according to the Bible. Safety. A non-accusing environment. No embarrassing anyone. No cornering anyone. No shaming but respect and sympathy and listening and understanding so that people can exhale and open up and unburden their souls. A church environment where no one seeking the Lord has anything to fear. Time. No pressure. Not even self-imposed pressure. No deadlines on growth. Urgency, but not hurry. Because no one changes quickly. A lot of space for complicated people to rethink their lives at a deep level. God is patient. This is what our churches must be. Gentle environments of gospel plus safety plus time. It's where we're finally free to grow. Christ City, interdependent care for one another. It actually only happens when we realize there's no insignificant parts of the body. What if your healing is caught up in the gift of someone you don't yet know? What if the gift you have is actually the healing that someone else needs? It's interdependent care. Interdependent care only happens when we're not amputating parts of the body, either ourselves or others. And interdependent care only happens when we live into the fullness of the gospel where we're united together in Christ, filled with his spirit. And when we embrace this as our vision, I believe that we'll thrive as a community and that we can shine light in this great city for God's glory alone. Would you stand with me as we respond today?